This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Good afternoon. You're all very welcome to TJI, though I know most of you are uh, with us more often than this. Um, I'm Catherine O'Rourke, I'm TJI Director as of today, uh, and I'm also convening the uh, Women, Peace and Security seminar series this year. So the seminar series is intended to uh, mark the upcoming 20th anniversary of secu the Security Council's adoption of Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security. And uh, today's talk is part of the seminar series. So as many of you will know, uh, Resolution 1325 was adopted by the Security Council in, in 2000. And it endorsed the importance of women's participation in peace building, um, recognised the specific protection needs of women in conflict, um, and also encouraged um, a gender perspective in all of the Security Council's peace and security activities. Um, in the intervening two decades, we've had a further nine resolutions adopted by the Security Council on this kind of broad theme of women, peace and security. Um, and indeed, with the adoption of those resolutions, we've seen certainly seen increased institutional activity by the Security Council itself. We have lots of reporting and monitoring going on around um, the agenda. Uh, we see national governments taking on the agenda, particularly through national action plans on women, peace and security, and indeed both the UK and Ireland have one. Um, so 20 years uh, since the adoption of the initial resolution, I think is a good time to reflect on where we are, where we've come from, uh, an opportunity I think to celebrate the achievements, uh, to critique some of the deficiencies, and of course to do a little bit of forward planning around what's next. Um, the TJI was established in 2003, and since then has really been at the heart of the relevant sort of academic and policy debates about WPS, its promise and its perils. So one of the most um, trenchant and enduring critiques of the WPS agenda has been, um, I think we can identify a fairly clear shift from the initial resolutions focus on participation um, and peace building um, to a substantially narrower focus on the question of sexual violence against women in armed conflict. Um, and indeed, when we look at the Security Council's institutional activities on women, peace and security, um, there is, I think, quite a clear pattern where the celebratory statements about women's participation in peace building have been accompanied with very little monitoring and enforcement, whereas the more specific provisions around sexual violence and armed conflict um, have been accompanied by some robust monitoring and enforcement. Um, so, and also, also a subject of critique uh, has been the Security Council's um, definition of sexual violence and how it has approached the issue through the WPS resolutions. Um, it's defined sexual violence and armed conflict quite narrowly, prescriptively, uh, principally to apply to widespread and systematic practice of sexual violence um, uh, perpetrated with military objectives, um, so so-called strategic rape. Um, and, often and often, even with that definition, limited to quite a small number of country settings in which the Security Council is directly involved. So feminist critique of this definition um, focus and approach to sexual violence and armed conflicts uh, within the WPS agenda is, I think, first of all, that it's unduly narrow, that it certainly has, in, arguably, it's a subversion of the initial participation agenda. Um, it assures the relationship between conflict-related and non-conflict, ostensibly non-conflict violence, 
and it obscures the significant continuities that we know exist between violence against women before, during, and after conflict. So in many respects, um, these kind of critiques of WPS and how they've addressed sexual violence and conflict um, draw on foundational feminist insights um, on the relationship between public and private spheres and that foundational feminist mantra, the personal is political. So in articulating this critique of WPS and the approach to sexual violence and armed conflict, um, and critically in evidencing the shortcomings of this approach to sexual violence and armed conflict, in doing the difficult empirical work of tracking how violence against women manifests and transmutes through conflict and across different conflict spaces, um, no one's scholarship has been more important than that of our speaker today, Dr. Ashley Swain. Um, Ashley's work, uh, most notably her monograph, Conflict-Related Violence Against Women, Transforming Transitions, available in all good bookshops and some bad ones, I'm sure, um, <laughs> is the seminal text in articulating this critique of the WPS agenda. Uh, we're very fortunate to be able to include Ashley in our WPS at 20 seminar series, and indeed to host her this week as a visiting scholar, um, somewhat shortened, of course, by the strike action that we appreciate her solidarity and uh, cooperating on that. Um, Dr. Ashley Swain is currently Associate Professor of Peace and Security um, in the Gender Department at the London School of Economics. And she's also one of the key people leading uh, their master's programme on women, peace and security. Uh, prior to joining LSE, she was Professor of Practice at w in Women, Peace and Security at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University in Washington, DC. Prior to that, she was a Global Hauser Fellow at NYU. And prior to that, she was a consultant on peace and security for UN Women at um, its headquarters in New York. Now, of course, most important and most distinguished of all of these illustrious achievements is the fact that she was a PhD researcher here at the TJI um, prior to all that. This is where Ashling undertook her doctoral research that was published in this book. And um, happily, Ashling and I overlapped as PhD students here. We shared the TJI PhD office um, behind us. Um, so I was fortunate enough to witness the brilliance up close as it unfolded. <laughs> Um, um, so, Ashley's going to speak for about 40 minutes on our paper, uh, which should leave us about 40 minutes for Q&A. Um, Ashley, a very warm welcome back to TJI, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Thanks, Catherine, and hi, everybody, and thank you for coming. Um, and it's lovely to be back at TJI, and just peeping into the PhD room and going, oh, there's my desk. <laughs> it feels a long time ago. Um, but here we are, and yes, I had the pleasure of overlapping with Catherine, whom I have learned a lot from, and particularly as I used to be a practitioner in this area, and I've worked in, in humanitarian aid around the world prior to kind of going into academia, and I've learned a lot of my academic um, pursuits through Catherine, and she has guided me a lot along the way, and I want to thank her for that. And thanks to the TJI for hosting me this week. Um, as a visiting scholar, it's great to be back and trying to continue engagement with Northern Ireland and my research here as well. And before I go ahead, I want to say a big congratulations to Catherine for taking on and becoming the director of the Transitional Justice Institute as of today, I believe. Um, as I said, we started out there in that room. I knew she was destined for great things. And it's fantastic to be here and have her leading um, the work of the institution again. And I think great things are ahead as a result of that. So I'm going to, as Catherine said, talk a little bit about my research. Some of it um, coming from the research I did here through my PhD and, and the book. But also I'm going to draw in some work on um, items that Catherine mentioned, which is National Action Plans on Women, Peace and Security. I do a lot of work in that area again. So it's a bit of a mishmash of things, but I'm hoping it makes sense by the time I get to the end of this. Okay, so bear with me. There's a thread going through this, I promise. Um, and what I'm going to do... Clicker. Got me a clicker. <laughs> okay, let's see if it works. Okay. So we've, I framed it as, as looking at visibility and response. And part of that is in, in looking at with the seminar series that, that Catherine has set up here is this 
20-year trajectory of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And just to say as I go forward, I'll make it some assumptions about knowledge about some of this. If there's things that I'm assuming too much on, please stop me. Or afterwards, certainly I'll be happy to answer questions. But I hope I give enough context to carry those of you who are not so familiar with me. Um, but uh, you know, bear with me here and there. So part of this has been the project of feminism, of making visible the harms that women experience in armed conflict. And that's been a very important endeavor over the last 20 or 30 years. But then we get a response to that work, which is the Women, Peace and Security agenda itself. And as Catherine articulated, quite a reductive way of framing the harms that women experience in conflict, which I'll talk about in more detail now. And also then the response from, for me, certainly as someone who's a former practitioner who worked on programs addressing sexual violence in places like Darfur and Kosovo in my kind of past career, um, is, well, given that we have all these resolutions that say that these harms conflict, what's actually happening then to implement those commitments. And that's where these national action plans come into play. So I'm going to talk about the agenda and just set the scene a little bit. Some of you will be familiar with this, some of you won't, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Then some of the inaccuracies, right? So what my research says to what the Security Council says and compare those two. And then this gap that I think there is in terms of what the Council is telling us is women's experiences versus actually this is what women are saying themselves and what the gap then is in terms of implementation. So before I go ahead, I just want to make a note of terminology, and I've way too much information up here for you, but just you know, there's all sorts of terms that are used in this field, and emergingly, they have been emerging and they are increasingly contested. Um, a word that I really like is the word harm, because um, I think it, it, it allows for space to capture a range of things, and Catherine in her book um, is the definition I always use, because I think she frames it beautifully, is that you know, harm is a way for us as, as women and, and as actors in this field to articulate what the harms are in empirical reality, right? What the experience of it is compared to what the law says it is, right? The definitions that are narrow. So harm gives us more space to talk about, here's my harm. And that harm can be a range of different things, whereas laws define them in particular ways, like violence is this, sexual violence is that. Um, <coughs> I use the term conflict-related violence against women to capture all forms of harm that are violence that might occur in a conflict um, that is related to the conflict in some way and that might be directly related or indirectly related. Conflict related sexualized violence, so violence of a sexualized form that in some way is related indirectly or directly to the conflict. Then we move down to what the Security Council of the UN says. The Security Council uses the term sexual violence in conflict very deliberately to say, this happens in a conflict in this way and that's what we're talking about. The other stuff, broader harms, other violences, we're not really interested in that, right? So that's their term. And then feminists and certainly policymakers and practitioners and women's organizations would use the term gender-based violence, which I'll also use. So gendered violence being an understanding that the violences that women experience, whether inside or outside of conflict, have their root causes in gender inequalities and power relations in terms of gender dynamics. So I'm going to be using those terms in different ways, but you'll see me largely using harm and conflict-related violence against women and in terms of being a broad capture of what women experience. So I'm going to talk a little bit about visibility and how sexual violence um, how, how violence against women in conflict became visible through, um, I suppose, the trajectory of international law and, and public policy that's happened at international levels. Some of you will know this, but just very briefly to, to set the scene for us is we know that in the 1990s, this was the first time 
that the violence that women experienced of a sexualized form in conflicts came to global attention, right? So the wars of the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda in the 1990s is the first time, partly through media, partly through um, the attention that these conflicts were given, partly because of their locations in Eastern Europe and the attention, and um, there's a critique, feminist critique of, you know, the attention to white women's bodies being violated um, in Eastern Europe. But the first time um, that sexual violence as a tactic of conflict, so deliberately used for the purposes of political violence or political ends in a conflict. The first time that was categorically kind of, I suppose, categorised within an official document was a report of, of a United Nations investigative commission to the former Yugoslavia um, in the 1990s. And it was documented as happening in a patterned way. And from that time, then we see much more attention happening that we need to understand that sexual violence is not random, it's not a byproduct of conflict, it's not boys being boys, it's not the spoils of war for men, that actually it may be happening in a patterned way and on purpose by these armed groups. So from there, we see a turn to accountability, a turn towards uh, the criminal justice system and international system for accountability. So the international tribunals in Rwanda and former Yugoslavia in particular, um, prosecuting sexualized violence as a tactic within armed groups for the first time under international, human, um, international humanitarian and criminal law regimes. We then see the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court uh, defining sexual violence as a war crime and a crime against humanity. And then come the Women, Peace and Security Resolutions in 2000. So that's just the backdrop to all of this and where the Security Council gets its context from in terms of looking at sexual violence and conflict. So here's the resolutions, and this is way more information, but I'm going to point out a few things to you. I know that's very dense. But as Catherine said, there's been 10 resolutions since 2000. The first being 1325, which was celebrated as this opening up of the space in the Security Council. Prior to that, the UN General Assembly, through the human rights resolutions, had had numerous instruments like CEDAW on the Beijing platform and gender equality. The first time the Council recognises there are women existing in armed conflicts, right, that they do exist, and that there are particularities around their exclusions from peace processes, peace building, etc., as well as particular harms that they might experience. So we do get a nice framing of, you know, gender-based violence in the language there. In 2008 came the first resolution specifically focused on sexual violence and conflict, Resolution 1820. And it's really interesting, and we should be curious as to how it's framed. It's, it, it frames its focus on sexual violence when used or commissioned as a tactic of war in order to deliberately target civilians or as part of a widespread or systematic attack against civilian populations. So that is the council saying, this is the violence we're interested in, this is the violence we're addressing, and that's that. And the subsequent resolutions, so there are five resolutions focused on sexual violence and five resolutions on broader issues like women's participation in peace processes and conflict prevention, etc. But the, the language has largely stayed the same in and out of these resolutions. So in the sexual violence focused resolutions, very much about this idea of tactical rape, that, that it's when armed groups use it on purpose. These other, so 1889 and 2242 tried to have more broader, bring in the concept of gender. And for the first time in 2019, this last year, we have acknowledgement that sexual violence may occur on, on a continuum. And what that means is that they're starting to hear some of the critique that's been coming that we can't say that what happens in conflict, a lot of feminists would say that what happens in conflict is not distinctive or exceptional. 
we have to understand that that has a context to the gender inequalities that women experience outside of conflict and to the levels of violence in women's lives outside of conflict. So can we see that there are continuums in violence from the home to public spaces, from conflict to non-conflict, this, this, understanding this. Now the interesting thing is that they put the idea of continuums in the what's called the preambular, so the, the part where they introduce the resolution rather than the part where they say here's what we're going to do. So they're not quite as committed as we'd like them to be, but they're getting there, right? So the language is changing. But we do have a legacy and a context of the women, peace and security agenda being largely around sexual violence and conflict. And what the council is saying to us is they are interested in sexual violence when it is used as a weapon of war. So that's what it's framed as, right? A weapon of war or strategic rape. It's used for strategic ends. Number of the, there's contestation in the council, but a number of the members would say we're only interested when it happens in conflicts on the agenda of the council. So usually every year they have about 12 or 13 countries that they're looking at where they have peacekeeping missions or where they have sanctions, for example, and that's where they're interested. Others would contest that, but there's a bit of a fight around that and we'll talk about that if you want. Um, and they're interested then in gathering evidence to show where armed groups are using it in systematic ways. And that's what they're doing, right? And that's what they're interested in. So that raises a lot of questions for us, and it certainly has raised questions for me as someone who was a practitioner now in, in kind of the more scholarly arena, trying to figure out well, what does that mean for what gets made visible, right? So what's being made visible by the Security Council? It is a very narrow framing of the potential harms that women might experience in a conflict, right? So I have questions then, you know, is all sexualized violence against women a war strategic, right? And we do understand there's a difference between mass sexual violence, so happening on a wide scale versus, you know, because there's an opportunity for it, versus strategic armed groups are ordered to use it, right? Um, and then there's other forms beyond, are there other forms beyond this violence happening in a conflict? Given the way that the Council talks about sexual violence, is that framing more relevant to the Security Council and its interests itself? rather than to the reality of women's experiences on the ground. And that's a key question for us as feminists to try and figure out. And then the key thing, is sexual violence the only thing that a woman experiences in respect of harm in a conflict? And then there's this whole thing that there's been a whole kind of discourse coming out that well, sexual violence is the worst thing that could ever happen to a woman. And maybe it is, and some, maybe some women might frame it that way, and that's fine. But if it becomes that, then, then what are we making invisible by that idea, right? So what's been made invisible around that? And the question then for me is that if I'm a woman experiencing conflict in, in any part of the world, am I able to articulate what happened to me as a result of this conflict and have it taken seriously, have it addressed, have it count as part of the story and narrative of this conflict? Because if I'm being told it has to look like a certain form of sexual violence, then maybe I won't say out loud this has happened to me or this is how I see my experience of this conflict. And you know, I think that that's really important for us um, in terms of making visible the full experience of women's experiences of conflict. So I'm going to move on then from the Women, Peace and Security agenda and look at what research is, is talking to us a little bit about. I love this quote here, it's from Doris Buss, who's a feminist legal scholar, um, and it just, I think, captures it all perfectly. When she talks about this idea of rape as a weapon of war or strategic rape, she comes out with this line and says, well, it's not inaccurate, but it's not entirely accurate either. And I think that perfectly captures it because we have to acknowledge that on the one hand, there are armed conflicts where rape does happen as a weapon of war, ostensibly, right, if we use that term. There are armed groups who use it in, as to tactical ends um, and are ordered to use it, and that has been shown by some of the international courts. But it's not entirely accurate because 
in those conflicts there may be other harms happening as well or there may be conflicts where we don't have mass sexual violence or strategic rape happening but are there other things happening that could be gendered kinds of harms so this weapon of war framing is important it has made visible a lot of these harms but we need to think about whether that's wholly accurate or not right in terms of what the council works on so key arguments and critiques have come out of out of research on this the 1820 effect. Basically, Resolution 1820 in framing sexual violence in this way has had a consequence. And the consequence being that there's been this whole discourse that has come out since the adoption of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda over the last 20 years that sexual violence and conflict is something new. It's in these modern war wars. And also that it happens in these other places, right, which I'll talk about a bit too. The historical prevalence of conflict-related violence against women is missing. And I, I've done some digging myself, and there's lots of scholarship coming out now showing the prevalence of violence against women back to the Roman Wars, back to the um, American Civil War, back to um, kind of the, the, if you want, the Vietnam War in the 70s, World War II, World War I. All these wars all had different harms and gendered harms impacting women. And yet today the council is saying, this is exceptional to today's wars. And it makes invisible that whole story, um, you know, and that's really important for us to think about. Because what we've seen is, through the Security Council agenda, a relentless attention to the sexualized idea of women's bodies, right, that we're only occupied with women's um, sexual bodies. There's been a hyper-visibility of certain kinds of sexual violence, such as strategic rape, and of certain rape victims. There's, there's a really colonial tone to, to how the Security Council frames this, and that is these African women in other countries that this happens to, and we look over there, without members of the Security Council or of the UN looking to their own context, not only for conflict-related violence, but what's called ordinary or non-conflict violence against women that we have happening in our societies, provides the platform for, what, for if a conflict erupts, right, and, and what happens there. There's a bit of a moral panic um, about sexual violence and conflict, placing it as something different from the other issues in armed conflict. Um, and you're really kind of naming the men who use this violence as monsters. There's a whole thing about monsters, that these men are monsters, they're savages, they do all these things. Whereas actually we have sexual violence happening in our everyday relationships, in our intimate relationships in every country around the world. So we really need to ask questions about what this visibility of sexual violence has done, where it has brought us today in, across these 20 years. So on the one hand, it has been so important in terms of the feminist project to make visible the harms that women experience in conflict. But when you ask a body like the Security Council to take that on, we come up with a but, right? And also the idea of what um, Karen Engel calls carceral feminism, that the gaze of the turn to accountability, looking for criminal justice accountability for sexual violence, means that we focus on certain elements of a crime. And again, hiding some of the wider aspects of a harm that women might experience. So I have this question that, you know, what lies beyond strategic rape? Are there other harms? What is going on in armed conflicts that we need to think about and dig a bit deeper to show that, yes, it is accurate to say that strategic rape might happen, but it's inaccurate to say that that's the only thing that happens, or that's the only way that women might experience violence or harm in a conflict. And I have questions then about, you know, how we compare that this violence is more important than that violence, um, what about the relationship with non-conflict gendered violence? Um, and you know, to think about even where we have exceptional or, or distinctive sexual violence happening on a mass scale or on a strategic scale in the context of an armed conflict, is that unrelated to the everyday ways that women might experience sexual harassment, sexual violence, different kinds of harms in their everyday lives? So 
what I did then was take that idea and did, um, as Catherine said, empirical work on trying to dig deep and find out well, what is happening in some armed conflicts? What are the kinds of harms that women are experiencing? So I looked at case studies of um, Liberia in West Africa, Timor-Leste in Southeast Asia and Northern Ireland. Um, and so there are two, three very different contexts. There are three very different contexts with kind of political contestation, um, armed conflicts, etc., happening. And they showed me different things. And I'm going to share just a snippet of that. So I can't kind of show everything. It's just really a snapshot. And if you want to talk more about it, we can do that. Um, and it's, I'm just going to give you a snapshot, rather than kind of the theoretical frames, more the empirics of what I found, because I want to show you then why this demonstrates the gap in implementation on the Women, Peace and Security agenda. So I documented by talking to um, people who work on violence and digging deep in archives in Liberia and Timor-Leste, this is what I found during the conflict. So strategic rape did occur, as, you know, or it is framed that way by the reports of truth commissions in both contexts. There was mass sexual violence taking place in some of these conflicts in a public way. You also then had other harms that were happening, some of which fit into the criminal justice paradigm and some of them outside of it. There was, for example, abduction of women, women held for sexual slavery. There was forced marriages happening in both contexts. There were, for example, reproductive harms, which we don't see mentioned really in the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And we'll talk about that a bit more. Deliberate mutilation of women's sexual organs and reproductive organs. Deliberate um, injury to their reproductive capacities. What we certainly don't talk about is the idea of forced pregnancy, forced motherhood, forced maternity, the children that come out of um, sexualized violence, but also broader harm. So in Liberia, for example, there was some ritualized violence that accompanied um, the sexual violence that, that implicated in kind of prior practices, so physical harms and trafficking or cannibalism, as it's called, different things that women were forced to do. There was also domestic violence and intimate partner violence happening in both contexts by actors related to the conflict and at the same time unrelated to the conflict but happening during the conflict if you like as well. In Timor-Leste children were abducted and taken from the country and transported elsewhere. Um, when there was displacement happening after the Indonesians left in 1999, sexual violence in camps, domestic violence happening, same in, in Liberia as well. And important to note that a lot of what I was told was yes armed actors acted on orders in some contexts. But actually at the same time, in Liberia there was armed men, women would tell me how they were maybe fleeing their village or, or moving to a, a site of displacement and they were going to a checkpoint and a guy who they knew from their village saw them and took them out and raped them because he could. Right? He wasn't ordered to, it was just the opportunity presented. In Timor, let's say there was proxy militia who weren't ordered to um, engage with women in the conflict but were harassing women, forcing them into sexual relationships things like that, that have nothing to do with the orders, but because they were given the power and the status of being involved in the, kind of the military end of things, if you like. Um, and broader physical harms that have nothing to do with strategic rape as a tactic, but were accompanied some of the sexual violence. And then these reproductive harms again, right? So a real, you know, a broad range of violence, if you like, happening there. And then Northern Ireland, which is a really interesting context in respect of what I've just talked about. So Northern Ireland is challenging because we don't, it, you know, we talk about what we call what happened here, right? So I'm going to call it the Troubles. Um, but in effect, if we read in and see, and I did a lot of digging in archival work, and I did a lot, and this is just a snapshot of what I have, but when we put it all together, we get a picture of gendered harms occurring in relation to 
the security situation here and, and the, the troubles themselves. And we can ask questions about whether they're conflict related, whether directly or indirectly related to the conflict, but they certainly talk to us about in a context like Northern Ireland where you don't have mass sexual violence recorded, where you don't have strategic rape documented in any way, shape or form, does that mean that no harms occurred related to, to the conflict impacting women? And I found that no, because there were harms. And I've mapped them out and I'll go very briefly through them. Um, you know, we have some harms occurring as a result of the actions of state forces and of paramilitary forces um, across uh, Northern Ireland. So for example, whether it's during house raids um, in the 1970s, sexual and psychological abuse, also security forces members using violence in their intimate relationships and using that status, meaning wives couldn't report to the police, etc. And scholars before me, Monica McWilliams and um, Katrina McKiernan and others have um, documented some of this, as I'm sure some of you are aware. Paramilitary forces using the status they have in their communities to access women and children. Um, we also have physical harm, so sexual harassment and violence passing through security barriers, sexual harassment on the street for some people in some communities, paramilitaries controlling women's sexualities and their freedoms in their communities. And none of this to do with orders or you know, kind of performance, political ends, if you like, of the conflict, but certainly related to how the structure of the political context was. Um, when women were held and detained, there was threats of sexual harassment and rape in detention. Uh, we also had, um, of course, the, the strip searching that was happening, refusal of access to reproductive harms, and some kind of very isolated incidents of sexual violence across <coughs> communities and killings. So it paints a different picture than what the Security Council tells us women's experiences of conflict look like, right? Um, and there's a lot more there I could talk about, but I want to note very quickly that the during conflict frame is what the Security Council has used, and that's important. And that's what we need to think about in terms of women's experiences of conflict. But that reinforces the idea that what happens in conflict is different from what happens outside of conflict. Now it may be, and some people may articulate their experience of harm in that way, and that's okay. But we also need to think of the context. Why use sexual violence? Why does it have meaning? Right, because, because that's what it's about. Like, why bother? Why would you use sexual violence? It has meaning because we have a context of inequality and gender power relations that give meaning to sexual violence before a conflict even occurs, right? Um, and so in all three contexts, prior to each of the conflicts, I did work to try and dig out what was there. You had kind of normative, what we all accept as the everyday, domestic violence in relationships, sexual harassment um, on the street, sexual harassment in the workplace, right? Things that we experience every day in our day-to-day -to -day today. Um, there was levels of domestic violence, what we consider to be the, the normative, if you like, the normal violences that exist in our everyday societies. And Timor-Leste and Liberia had some specific kinds of violations that would be called in kind of UN speak as, as gendered harms around um, forced and early marriages and things like that. Post-conflict in all three contexts, domestic violence, of course, remains an issue. Men who were returning fighters, of course, bring threats back into the home. Um, and in some contexts where armed groups cease to exist, so like in, in Liberia, um, in that Timor-Leste where the Indonesian regime who were there left, in some contexts those armed groups, are, so in Liberia for example the men returned home and women are living next door to the men who raped them, right? So this kind of um, dynamic still exists post-conflict. And in terms of accountability where truth commissions for example have happened in Timor and Liber Liberia, the question then is whether this range of harms are being captured or just this narrow slice of sexual violence and conflict which kind of obscures what's going on. So what I would take out of that research is things like 
Understanding the relationship between pre, during and post-conflict violence against women, that those continuums, that there are connections in terms of the gendered basis of the harms that women are experiencing, but at the same time there may be some distinctive harms, such as strategic rape that's ordered, that's happening. And so we need to account for there being both exceptional or distinctive harms as well as continuing harms that women would expect, if you like, during the conflict, that are directly and indirectly related to the conflict. Um, and, you know, altogether understanding that there's a volume of violence against women here that is beyond strategic rape only. Strategic rape may be happening, and that's, we need to acknowledge that and do something about that for sure, but there's also this wider volume of harms happening as well. And the key thing here then being, um, there are coexisting kinds of harms happening in a conflict. Those that will be called political or sexualized violence and conflict, according to the Security Council, and other harms that wouldn't reach that kind of definition, but they're being made invisible because of the way that the Council is selecting the kinds of harms it wants to make visible. And um, also that the lack of evidence of strategic rape or mass sexual violence doesn't mean that there wasn't gendered harms occurring, right? Particularly in a conflict like Northern Ireland, that there are state and non-state actors involved in perpetrating violence, but they also take place in public spaces, but also in private spaces, in the home, in your relationships that could be related to the conflict. And what really matters is how we label vi violence, because if we label it in a certain way, then it gets called something that is relevant to a body like the UN Security Council. So that's what makes it visible, what we call it and how we frame it and how we name it, whether that's in law or policy. Um, and that influences what we think our knowledge is about a conflict. When we think about someone who are like Liberia, a lot of people immediately think of mass sexual violence, but they don't think about the more minute of displacement, loss of homes, loss of children, loss of family, how, what those harms mean to women and the economic impacts of those and what, why don't they count as much? Because for some women that might be more important than a rape that occurred, right? And, and we get this kind of hierarchy of harms occurring in terms of what we make visible. So I'm gonna just have 10 more minutes Given all of that, so basically what I've done so far is shown you what the Security Council says it's interested in, in terms of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which is this tactical rape, strategic rape idea. I've then shown you what my research and then a lot of other research would show that there's more harms that exist in a conflict. And we really need to ask questions now. If it's the case that the Women, Peace and Security resolutions are being used to frame how we address women's needs in conflict, then what are we missing, right? And are we going beyond what the Council says to address the, the specific needs um, of women. And the key question is, how are the Women, Peace and Security resolutions influencing the way that states respond in conflict and post-conflict contexts? So I'm gonna show you a review of, very quickly, some um, piece, pieces of research that were done at the UN level in New York. These were, in 2015, a review of the Women, Peace and Security agenda a review of the peacekeeping operations of the UN and a review of the peacebuilding operations of the UN. And the idea was to check, well, where are we at? What's going on? How progressive is this work? And what are the gaps? And what these three reviews found were three common things. That conflict has changed over the last 20 years. The complexities of conflict need to be grappled with much more. That there are a range of actors in armed conflict that we need to take um, attention to in terms of not just beyond kind of state and non-state actors, but private sector actors as well. That the needs and concerns of women are variant and that we need to try and think more about looking at women's lives themselves and taking that as the lead rather than kind of what the policy is saying. 
And that's a big gap in terms of what they call inclusivity, meaning that currently the Women, Peace and Security agenda and other resolutions and other frameworks treat women as a homogenous group. All these women are the same, don't see differences, whether that's sexuality, ability, disability, ethnicity, race, etc. That we're not seeing the, the range and, and difference of women. And in particular, they found things like, despite all the work and the rhetoric around participation and addressing conflict and post-conflict peace building, that actually the system and states that are engaging in conflict contexts are still missing the very basics. Food, shelter, water, health response. And it's this piece by Bangura says, um, based on Sierra Leone, we can't eat peace. So even though we have this big conversation about um, peace building and all these kind of this rhetoric around security, that at the end of the day, people who are displaced, who have lost their homes, who are affected by conflict, they don't have the very basics and we're not ensuring that they do. And I think that's a critical lesson for us when we think about the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Because if you think about the impacts of sexual violence, if we're only looking at it in a particular way, then this tells us that we're also not addressing the very basic needs that women and girls might have after sexual assault. So I went about looking at what is doing, and this is another piece of research that I'm marrying with this very quickly. You're probably aware, and Catherine mentioned them, states have been encouraged to adopt national action plans to implement the WPS agenda. There's um, 83 national action plans to date around the world. Member states translate the resolutions and what they say into actions that they say they're going to implement in their national and their foreign policy, right? So it depends on the state, we can talk about that if you like. So UN Women asked me to do this piece of work to look at whether plans are actually addressing the needs of women and girls affected by sexual violence. So I had this question, are these plans actually addressing and responding to the rights and needs of, of women and girls? Because if the reviews are telling us we're missing gaps on food and health and water, then what's happening to sexual violence survivors? Because they're going to be at the very bottom of the pile. So I just went about looking at four plans, because this is what you and women wanted me to look at. Indonesia, Nepal, Philippines and Timor-Leste. Where are victim survivors featuring the plans? What actions are meeting their needs? And it's particularly around livelihoods, right, in terms of overcoming um, this. And what I did just to say, I just looked at the text of the plans. I didn't look at implementation of the plans. I looked at the plans and what the plans say the state is going to do about sexual violence. And these four plans are all focused on their own context and looking inwards, right, and finding their own implementing the plan within their own borders, if you like. So these four contexts have all experienced conflict. They all have um, the, the impacts of conflict now that they're living with. A lot of people displaced, still recovering from the conflict in those post-conflict contexts. So in order to examine the plans, I use the framework um, from gender planning. So in the development field, we have a whole body of work on gender planning. How do you plan, whether it's urban planning or planning for development in a way that's gender responsive? In the women, peace and security field, we don't seem to remember that this exists, so I'm trying to bring it in a bit and have us bring our conversation back to gender as the frame rather than women as the frame, because they're two different things, right? And there's a framework that looks at when you're making a plan, say you want to do a programme, whether it's a livelihoods programme, an agricultural programme, whatever it might be, are the initiatives you're trying to undertake meeting both the practical needs and the strategic needs of the people involved? Practical being my everyday food, shelter, water needs. Once you have those satisfied, then you can look at your strategic needs, my rights under the law, my right to participate, my right to be able to make a decision. And I looked at whether the four action plans were meeting both the practical and strategic needs of sexual violence victims. And I made out a table just to kind of 
there's more, this is much longer in the report itself if you want to look at it. But for example, in terms of practical needs for victims, survivors of sexual violence and all range of violence in war, thinking about things like basic shelter when you're returning from displacement, if, particularly if you are bearing the stigma of sexual violence and you've been ostracised from your family. Do you have somewhere to live? Do you have shelter? Do you have access to food? Um, ability to get basic health care and reproductive health care and psychosocial care. That's the very basics. But if we want to advance that towards rights, we should be ensuring reproductive rights, abortion services, fertility services, recognition of victimhood under the law because of the way that your harm has occurred, um, further protections from further violence in the aftermath. So looking at the range of things that any national action plan should be addressing if they are to meet the full needs of a woman who ex has experienced any kind of gendered harm in a conflict. Now this is the pie in the sky ideal, this is what we all wish would happen. But I use that to look then and see what, what the plans are actually doing. So this is what I found and I'm going to go through these uh, in detail and show you. So I literally took the action plan matrix. So each plan has, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And each of the actions, I looked at whether it met the practical needs of women themselves or their strategic rights. So things like reproductive rights, legal rights, etc. And I just ticked them all and mapped them all. And of the four plans together, only 13% of the actions address the practical needs of women and girls. In four countries where there has been mass armed conflict, 35% of the actions met strategic rights needs, like legal rights, um, reproductive rights, things like that, although they don't really appear in the plan, but those kinds of rights ends. I found another category in the plans, what I've called institutional needs. And basically, these are actions in all of the action plans that are about the state itself. Gender mainstreaming, training of staff, um, provision of workshops, provision of gender advisors and focal points. Now, I workshopped this with um, groups of women from these four countries in South Asia. So, and they all fed back to me and said, it's really important that these plans have these initiatives because the staff of governments, we don't magically know how to do gender mainstreaming, right? We don't magically understand gender. So for sure, we need these actions. But should we have action plans where the majority of the initiatives are focused on the state and not on women and girls, which is the intention of the WPS agenda, right? So this is really telling to me in terms of what these action plans are doing and not doing for women and girls, right? Then I looked at sexual violence and violence against women actions in the plan. So of the four plans, the, of the actions focused on um, conflict-related sexual violence particularly, almost half of them were focused on that, which is great. But these vary, as you see, Indonesia had 22% of its actions on violence, Timor-Leste had 3%. And what's really interesting with that finding is that you think, well, why would Timor-Leste have only 3% when they had 25 years of an Indonesian occupation, mass sexual violence occurring, the, the Truth Commission has found this. And I went digging and realized that Timor-Leste has a national action plan on gender-based violence. So it has a separate plan on gender-based violence. So you think, okay, so it's all been addressed there. No. So in the National Plan on Gender-Based Violence is all focused on today's domestic violence, which is great. The National Action Plan on WPS doesn't address conflict time violence. So neither of the plans on gender equality address conflict time violence. It's disappeared. Right? So it's completely missed out. Even though in Timor-Leste, I know today, people, children born of rape are still finding out their identities. There is women living with the consequences of this, women who are stigmatised from their communities because they were forced into marriages, etc. In, um, then I looked at, I don't know if you can see that probably, the proportion of practical. So practical needs are the dark blue, strategic are the light blue, and the grey is institutional needs. And you see that there's somewhat of a balance across them, but 
again, very little around, and I show you what that actually means, is that of those actions, only 10% are on health. And if you've had mass sexual violence, if you had reproductive harms, that's probably the most important thing that you need. And yet the focus is all on legal rights, which basically is, is um, showing that the plans are responding back to the Security Council, which is more interested in its own interests, which is legal rights, right? And securitizing women's violence. So I'm gonna go skip that one. Missing from the plan then is disaggregating what is understood as violence to the reality of women's experiences. They don't appear, right? They're taking the framing of the Security Council. Reproductive harms are largely invisible. Children born of rape don't appear at all. Um, there's little to no reproductive and health rights services in any of the plans. There's little to no attention to post-conflict violence against women, except for Timor Leste, where domestic violence is appearing in both of the plans. And none of them focus on things like inheritance, land rights, homes, things like that for women. Um, and I'd say kind of the, what this says to me overall in terms of the response of the WPS agenda to the reality of women's lives is that the planning process mediates and bargains around women's lives, right? So we're only getting slivers of women's lives appearing in these plans. The methodologies determine the way that women's lives appear. And if they're responding to the WPS agenda, they're not actually responding to the reality of women's lives. So if we have reductive approaches to violence in the WPS agenda, so strategic rape, then we have reductive planning, which means that the implementation of the WPS agenda is missing a majority of the experiences of, of harm in women's lives. And it's missing what the WPS agenda should be doing. They're upholding hierarchies of harm, so strategic rape becomes the focus. Um, we definitely have a tension between the lived experience of women versus what the council is saying it wants to do. The WPS agenda and the plans are missing some of the tensions that are, that are important there in terms of making sure I have practical needs like a home, that I'm able to feed my kids, that I have food to eat, before asking me then to be a participant in the political process, before expecting me to be able to, to work outside the home. Um, inclusivity is, is certainly missed. We're not disaggregating who is appearing in the plans, what kinds of women. Make sure they're planning. Um, and you know, we have this idea of oppression Olympics, like whose oppression matters more? Is it gender? Is it sexualities? Is it disability? Is it race? And, and it's, it's just reinforcing the idea that some things are more important than the others, right? Um, and then very lastly, I'll shut up now, is um, kind of 20 years on, you know, all of this started out in the 1990s by feminist scholars bringing to light what happened in Yugoslavia and Rwanda, as I said. And the big argument being made by people like Rhonda Copeland and others was, we need to surface gender. We need to show that conflicts are gendered and the experience of women in conflicts are gendered. And that's how the WPS agenda came about. And in terms of sexual violence, it was so important that sexual violence became part of the WPS agenda. But I'd argue today that given what I've just shown you, we actually need to resurface gender again 20 years on because we've lost the gender framing. We've lost the idea that there are gendered harms beyond how the council would frame sexual violence. We need to make visible wider ranges of harms. That's, that violence against women can be systematic um, and strategic, but it also can be systemic, meaning it's part of our societies. So it's happening in different ways before, during and after conflict. And that needs to be addressed through our action plans, for example. Um, and the, the empirics are important. What women say happens to them is more important than what the council says is important, right? So I'd really argue then that while we have women in, in security under the Women, Peace and Security agenda, we really need to move more towards gender, peace and security and gender as the framing for that. 
So I leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ashley. You're rich and comprehensive. Um, just to note that we are recording this session uh, for to, to podcast publicly. If you'd prefer not to have a question or contribution included, that's fine. Just let me know. Okay. Um, so with that, I open the session up to questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, questions. Okay. First question is: um, What do the women facing security classify as a girl? Yeah. And the second question is, there wasn't any mention um, there around um, sexual transmitted diseases. Yeah, sure. Almost what probably somebody, they don't have the time to tell each other. Sure. Sure. I'll answer. Please, okay. yeah, go ahead. Great, thank you. Um, so, in terms of girls, so the WPS agenda, if you've read any of the resolutions, and there's critique of this from feminists, where they have women and girls, and it's almost you can clap them like women and girls, like they're a box, you know, and, and we put them in a box. But in terms of girls, they would use the, the UN definition, which is the Convention on the Rights of the Child, that a girl is up to the age of 18, right? So that would certainly be how it's framed um, by the UN system itself. And you know, that, that idea varies in different cultures around the world. And, and again, we need to pay attention to that reality rather than coming in with the frames, if you like, from outside. Um, but girls can be missed. And, and I think certainly what I've seen, and when I worked in Kosovo, for example, in 1999, what I found was we saw women were raped in the conflict and we saw children were abducted and child soldiers, but teenage girls were being missed altogether. And that group of teenagers who were targeted for sexual violence because of their age, because of marriage practices, etc., that the needs of adolescents, um, girls and boys actually are, are a big gap in this uh, context. STDs, um, um, you know, so as I said, pregnancies as a result of rape, sexually transmitted diseases, and also the transmission of HIV, which we've seen in, in different um, conflicts um, as an intentional act. Those are acknowledged, particularly HIV. Um, and there's a big push from international organizations and NGOs and stuff to try and get services for those who've experienced sexual violence, men, women, boys and girls, um, in humanitarian response. So in the big humanitarian response and health clinics, etc., cetera, that, that gets set up in refugee and displacement settings. But it's not always there. Um, and that depends on funders and donors and whether they're willing to fund agencies to provide those kinds of services. So they have what um, is a forensic kit, so you'll have um, emergency contraception, so there's this um, rape kit, it's called, it's a terrible name for it, but that's what it's called. Um, for, uh, you'll have the, 24, the 72 hour, the post-rape um, pill, and depending on the service provision, whether they can test for STDs or not. And it just depends, services patchy, it's not consistent, and some donors will fund it and some donors won't. So it just depends on the context, yeah. Violence at the end 
Thank you. That's a really interesting question. Um, and this idea of whether national action plans are an obligation is really curious. You know, you know, it's important because, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, wouldn't it be great if all states were forced to have an action plan to implement their commitments? But then I think what happens is states say, oh, here's our plan. And then as if that's the end of it, right? You know this, I don't need to tell you that. Um, but under the WPS agenda, the calls for action plans came from the Secretary General in 2002 and 2004, the first plan in 2005. And the plans only started appearing in the resolutions in the last two, so in 2467 and 2242, I think it is. So very recently, but it doesn't say the states have to have a plans, it just welcomes them which is very nice, right? And, and that's the extent that the Security Council will go. And it might be useful, you know, in terms of comparison, I don't know what you're looking at. But what's really interesting is statements made by Russia and China at the Security Council, which say categorically that national action plans on women, peace and security agenda should not be adopted by all states. They should only be adopted by those who are affected by conflict and on the agenda of the council. So if that's the case, then it would only be 12 countries. 12 or 13, depending on who's on the agenda. And also, it omits countries that have peacekeeping forces, right, that would go beyond that, who might not be in conflict, but that are engaging in conflicts and should obviously have gender mainstreaming in their peacekeeping. So the WPS agenda is really interesting from that context. In terms of business and sexual violence, there's a range of things. So in Liberia, for example, post-conflict, so you had the conflict was over, right? The men, armed actors were returning. There was those dynamics happening. Then what the NGOs were calling it was, MWMs, men with money, came in. So you had the private sector actors, you had contracted security firms, you had men who were brought in to work the mines and the rubber plantations. And these were men from Europe and South Africa, um, largely white men who came in with money. And suddenly transactional sex and sexual exploitation is a way for women to cope and survive, right? wholly exploitative given the context. So that's one thing. And then you have a context like the DRC where there's been a big attention to sexual violence um, against women who work in the mines in the DRC. Um, and that has been a big campaign on that. But then there's a counter critique of that, that again, sexual violence is being fetishized and used as a reason why we should start critiquing mines and you know the minerals that are used in our mobile phone chips, for example. And it's difficult because you want the sexual violence to be made visible, but the way it's made visible is what's problematic, as I've kind of, I guess, just outlined. So there's, there is links there around the private sector, if you like, in conflict and post-conflict context and where sexual violence and how it gets framed. Because then it's like, oh, well, they're being paid for sex, so that's transactional, that's fine. But without taking account of the context and the concept of consent in a context where women have to turn to sex for survival. Um, so there's interesting stuff there to look at, I think. So I have a question. It's quite um, maybe different. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm working on the situation narrative uh, in Egypt, Tunisia, uh, and uh, Libya. Um, and the idea is that I'm trying to look at different types of harm. And one of the things that came up as a question, and I don't want you to like, help me answer it. Sure. <laughs> Violence that was that we can have 
the government, I mean, the Mubarak regime accountable for, right. or it's something that is social and indirectly he's somehow responsible because of the economic and social policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Because after the revolution, there's still sexual violence, which yeah. is part of yeah. it's a big problem. Like. Yeah. But it's the, the new governments that succeeded tried to, to implement some new things, mm -hmm. uh, like laws, and, mm -hmm. and there was more awareness of, of that as a violence, yeah. as, as like a, a yeah. real problem in Egypt after the revolution. So I don't know if that shift proves that he was somehow, the, the regime at the time was responsible because he wasn't doing anything to prevent it, right. or it was something that was, on the contrary, something that was intentional, like, yes. in, yeah. like uh, yeah. as a way to control the public space somehow, sure. or sure. as a way to control sure. the women's mm -hmm. um, freedom, women's movement, yeah. and, yeah, mm -hmm. and how, mm -hmm. how they own the public space, because sure. they didn't feel safe anywhere, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you might have gone on some of the, the legal side of that, maybe, I don't know. But, and it is this tension when you think about, particularly with violence against women, of commission or omission, right? That if you're not doing anything about it, are, is the state responsible? Um, as opposed to, have they directed it or are they enacting it? Is, are there state actors enacting it, you know? And we know of women who were detained in, in Egypt and those countries who did experience sexual tortures, right, and things like that. So that's certainly more straightforward if you like i mean what you're at like did you find any evidence where there had been incitement by the state um through public media or even through its own forces to to harass women to keep their limit there their mobility the of, like whenever there was demonstrations mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's more, it's yeah. more by omission than commission. Yes. Because I don't think yeah. that the government was like uh, telling the guys to go and right. Prepare. Okay. Um, yeah. But they didn't do anything to prevent it. Like they started to deploy female police officers in the streets after the revolution, and they they actually voted a law against sexual harassment. Okay. So that was done really afterwards, and it right. continued for like thirty years. So I. I don't yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it is like this tension, as I said, between what becomes defined as conflict related or political or the responsibility of the state, right? Um, and I mean, I don't know, I don't have a direct answer on that. Do you have anything to add with your from the legal end of it? No? I'm sort of conscious. I can maybe talk to you afterwards. Yeah, like exactly. yeah, yeah, let's. <laughs> because, but it is, it's difficult. And particularly like with Egypt, for example, with the Security Council, that context you've described was included in a report of the special representative of the Secretary General on sexual violence and conflict in 2012, where she said that what was happening in Egypt amounted to conflict-related violence against women. And the Security Council shut her down. I mean, shut her down. I was in the council on that day and I was like, whoa. And the Egyptian ambassador particularly was like, get back in your box. This does not belong to this agenda. That is a different thing. So. There's a question for you around the legality of what is and isn't considered state responsibility commission omission, but there's also the politics of it, right? There's the politics whereby a state gets to say in the Security Council, that doesn't belong here, that belongs somewhere else. And that piece is really important, particularly around where women are trying to get accountability or improve their safety, right? Down to the very basics. Um, and, and 
that would be interesting for you to look at, I think, in terms of Egypt portraying what that violence is in a political sense, in terms of how they want to look at in the world, and then how that affects women's safety on the ground, right? Yes, that might be good, yeah. Mm. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
So mm -hmm. sure. try and bridge some of the gaps yeah. that in sure. the development process. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that's. It's great to hear your comments and, and just affirms for me a lot of what I, I, I heard there, you know, and I've been thinking about because, and you know, I had experiences in talking to Liberian women when I was there who would say, like they were working in international NGOs addressing gender-based violence and, um, oh God, what's that word? Is the word going out of my head? So women there and in Timor, they use the same word, it's gone. Abandonment, right? So abandonment is um, post-conflict in Timor and in Liberia where women who were married with children their husbands left them and had other um, sexual relationships and they were left without any income or sustenance or the status of marriage if you like that was required and kind of in, in their in their communities and in their lives making it very difficult for them so it's a very challenging circumstance and that's how women framed it from what I understood many of the women Liberian activists wanted to frame that as a form of gendered harm for them and some of the women I talked to in international organizations said that their head offices of these international NGOs told them that's not gender-based violence. It doesn't fit into the framework. And yet that was the most pressing concern for those women at that time. So again, we're back to this, like, who's, who, who, you know, whose um, voice is more important, right? And, and, you know, it's really important, I think, in terms of what you're saying. And I'm planning to do more work on the ritualized violence and the links prior, during and after the conflict with those rituals, because I think we're not seeing that at all and we're not making any connections um, with those violences. In terms of this, I, I looked at the, Na the Liberian National Action Plan and what's really great about the Liberian National Action Plan is that it actually doesn't confine itself just to the sexual violence of the war. Even though I, I think it's the same as you, I agree that my impression was that the rape law that came in, the really harsh penalties around rape in Liberia were all a reaction to what happened in the conflict. But actually what the services were seeing was larger numbers of domestic violence and sexual violence within intimate relationships. And that there was no law on that until recently, as you said. But the action plan does provide for domestic as well as looking at the aftermath of the conflict. So to me, it's about implementing that plan because it does provide a good framework actually to a bigger picture of violence, not just what happened in the conflict. The new iteration of the plan is out. I have a copy of it um, and I just haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's, I don't know where they're going to go with that, but in terms of part of this is whether women's civil society gets the space to articulate what they see as what's important to them and that to get onto the agenda rather than it being determined from outside by international frameworks telling them this is what's important. And to me, that's about the women's movement, um, the next generation of women peace activists as well, coming along and articulating what is important to them 10 years post-conflict. It's not unique to Liberia, unfortunately. Man and Sierra Leone is very similar, right, in terms of how, how are we dealing with this 10 to 15 years post the war? And But we can talk about that more afterwards, if you like, yeah. Yes. Uh, you have a good on, uh, on, on the agenda. Uh, it's part of your appraisal. Mm -hmm. That's usually done at the end of mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the cycle. Yeah. And, and I had a discussion with my supervisor then when I told him that uh, it's not just about the training. It's about how the training translates into how we develop yeah. concepts and how we deliver. Yeah. Uh, we deliver. We deliver concepts. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. But the question 
No, and, and it's a perennial question, I think, for all of us who work in these spaces, right, about we have these, and, and the commitments are wonderful. If we didn't have them, imagine what it would be like. I always think of it that way, as, as much as I critique them. Um, but then how do you get them to say, to do what they said they would do? And that's the project of, of activists and, and academics around the world, I think, trying to do that, you know? So keep going with your questions. <laughs> yeah, Rachel. Hi. Um, my name's Rachel. I'm going to have something kind of selfish based on my work. Go on, yeah. Women's sector lobbyists in Northern Ireland. Okay, great. Um, and I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on the UK's national action plan compared to Ireland's domestic and international national action plan and just really... Uh, the impact on women in Northern Ireland. Mm. Just mm. in our work, we talk mm. about the women's sector embodying the pillars of women's women peace and security, yeah. but having yeah. no government support yeah. on the matter. So, yes. yeah. just your thoughts on it? Lots of thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, and back in 2010, like when I was start, first started working on NAPS, the first thing was the, national, the UK National Action Plan and commenting on that. And, and you know, so the, of the 83 National Action Plans worldwide, it was up until about 2010, the majority were by Western European and North American states. And all of those plans were based in ministries of foreign policy and were looking out into their aid programs. So women, peace and security applies over there in Africa and South Asia, this kind, these kind of places, not here. Very problematic, obviously. We've had more of a swing now towards African, South Asian and Latin American and Caribbean states having plans, which is fantastic. But there's still this tension between Western European states not looking inward and not applying it in their own borders as well as through their foreign policy, right? And it, it's, it just creates all sorts of hierarchies that Expandara is talking about. And the UK is a classic example because it says that it will apply WPS in certain countries through its foreign policy, but doesn't include Northern Ireland in its national action plan or its work on WPS. Now, I've been witness to many of the women's sector in Northern Ireland challenging UK officials in UN spaces and saying, hang on a second, and there being a very uncomfortable silence and then a very blubbery response from UK diplomats saying, yeah, well, you know, WPS doesn't apply here. And I have challenged William Hague on it. I've had a conversation with him on it. Um, and he has kind of said, well, you know, it's, anyway. Um, so it's really problematic. But I suppose a couple of questions rise. One is, if I was a women's activist working here, am I going to decide that the UK action plan decides whether or not we work on WPS? Right. Or are we similar to your context? Are we going to decide as women activists that these are the things that we want done? And we can still use WPS, but there's other frameworks. Catherine and I do a lot of work on CEDAW, which I know you've used here extensively, Beijing. But even within WPS to say, this is how we see this. This is how we're, we're working on this. And these issues are of relevance here. And you've got, I was going to say, you've got strong, you've got, an <laughs> you've got a structure here, maybe at some point um, that you can work out within that. Um, so the, I don't know, I suppose I'd ask questions like, where do you want to spend your energy? Do you want to spend your energy trying to convince the UK government that they should be doing this? And that's a political project and, and is needed in some sense. Or do you want to spend your energy saying, let's draw funds in here in another way? And, and how do we address the realities? Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's about the realities of women's lives here. What do we need doing here? You can use the WPS agenda. But my big fear is that a lot of us 
are putting like WPS has become notorious it's the thing my big fear is that governments are putting all their eggs into the WPS basket um, and it's not the only game in town it's not the only framework it is important and use it where you can but be clever about not using it as well okay you want to implement your action plan but everything you do on gender under your development program under your national policy doesn't have to be WPS it can be but at the end of the day what are we trying to do we're trying to advance gender equality and women's rights and whether that's conflict related or not, the underpinning principle here is about what are the key issues that are barriers to women's rights, that are impediments to women's rights, what are the gaps, and what do we use in this, you know, for this issue, for that context, to try and advance those rights. So that's what I would look like look at. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to take the opportunity to ask a question. Uh -oh. if I may. <laughs> <laughs> just, kind of, just in our last few minutes, um, it's just kind of two questions. It's um, I suppose a lot of your critique focused on the limitations of the definition that we've seen advanced through yeah. the Security Council. Um, so I have two questions about that. I mean, one is uh, the Security Council, I mean, one of its implementing measures that you just responded to in terms of Egypt is the annual report on sexual violence and armed conflict, which is essentially, although it's a Secretary General's report, it's written by the Secretary General's Special Representative on Sexual Violence and Armed Conflict. Mm -hmm. And that report, interestingly, has actually in its reporting has moved well away from the Security Council's definition yeah, of sexual cancer. violence in, in the agenda. And that report, that reporting process has shown lots of autonomy in lots of ways yeah. um, in terms of who they've been willing to talk about and the types of sexual violence they've been able to talk about. And they, to and they talk about conflict-related sexual violence and mm -hmm. they define it in a way that you and I would, right? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting, I suppose, in the sense that there has been, my sense is that there is some loosening of the definition, at least in mm -hmm. looking at that process. So I wondered I'd get your thoughts on that. Yeah. And then the other question was just, I mean, even if we, um, as you know, I've just written a book on this, and um, even <laughs> if we um, adopt the um, narrow definition of the Security Council, mm -hmm. but actually, even if we assess it on its own very narrow terms, in terms of to what extent is this shaping the conflict-specific interventions by the Security Council in places that they've deemed to be threats to peace and security. Um, actually, the evidence seems to be that it's incredibly limited, right? So mm -hmm. um, we have some evidence of sexual violence in sanctions as designation yes, criteria. But um, things like, um, at the same time as the Special Rapporteur is listing the DRC army as a major perpetrator of sexual violence, the Security Council is empowering an intervention brigade that can forcibly support that same force, right? Oh, no. And I mean, that's just the most obvious oh, no. critique, but there are plenty yeah. of others. So I suppose, I mean, what does success look like in oh, this God. agenda? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, give in this agenda. Yeah, <laughs> I know, but those, I knew these would be hard questions. Um, yeah, so the Secretary General's report, as Catherine said, every year that this report, since 2010 on sexual violence and conflict, and since the inception of the agenda, well, since 2002, there's been one on women, peace and security broadly in October. So International Day Against Violence Against Women is the 19th of June or something like that. And they have um, an open debate at the Council and this report is presented. And yes, it's, it's drafted by the SRSG's office, so the Special Representative of the Secretary General on Sexual Violence, and presented as the Secretary General's report. Part of this discussion around Egypt was a push, a contestation by the SRSG to push open the boundaries. And they have come up with their own framing of conflict-related sexual violence. And that is through UN Action, which is a, a campaign that was put together of a range of UN entities who came together to advance addressing sexual violence through the UN system. So the UN Action framing is broader than what the Security Council resolutions say. And that's interesting itself because the entities are kind of saying, 
from that we're taking your definition but we're broadening it in the context of our work which is really positive and as Catherine said is something that we've used in our work and would use so there has been some loosening but at the same time when states are mentioned in that report who don't want to be seen as using sexual violence by their militaries or otherwise and might get away with not meeting the threshold of sexual violence and conflict their country statements in the security council are way more interesting to look at so as much as the the secretary general will present a report that says egypt and libya and these other contexts should be included here egypt and libya and others will then make a statement saying no that's wrong actually no and Russia and Ukraine will have a catfight, like an absolute fight in the council and shout at each other and say, no, we don't have sexual violence and this report is wrong. And they'll accuse each other of all sorts of things. So I feel like the report in a normative sense is pushing the boundaries and trying to push open. And the people who work in that office, I know them all, they're brilliant and they're trying to push this all the time. But then the political system is trying to retract it. So we have a tension between the politics and the, the actual realities again going on here. So it's like, who's going to win out? And at the end of the day, we're hoping that a plan like Liberia will come along and say, that's great, you have that definition, but here's our reality. There's more going on here than just that. And in our post-conflict context, we need to address this. Um, so I think there's hope in that sense to step outside the council. And at the end of the day, women's organizations are the one who drove this in the first place and hopefully they will keep driving it. But like Rachel's question is whether we get stuck back to using their framing or we keep pushing them on it. Um, and I think there is some loosening, but the politics of the Security Council will continue to restrict it. And many says, does it matter? Right, let them have their day and talk about it and we'll all just do what we should as much as we can, you know, within restrictions as you've, you've um, talked about. Um, and then in terms of, so what does success look like? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think what exactly you're asking me, because it's, you've mentioned the kind of the sanctions and, and the peacekeeping operations. So what's interesting under the resolutions, this whole architecture has been set up to, to address sexual violence and conflict. And as Catherine mentioned, sexual violence is now counted in some sanctions regimes um, under the, but it's, it, kind of it's hard to get that in there. Under resolution 1960, there's a MARA, which is the monitoring and reporting agenda, where states, actors who are known to perpetrate sexual violence, that information is gathered and they're named and shamed as such every year and report to the council that these groups are using sexual violence. So it's a naming and shaming strategy. And it's quite effective. Like I know people who rang these guys up on their Tarayas and the satellites and said, we know you're perpetrating sexual violence. And for some reason, those guys like to say, no, we're not using sexual violence. We are killing people, but we don't do that. And there's some tension here around why sexual violence, you know, it's, it's just really interesting, um, which is problematic as well as interesting at the same time. Um, if you look at the five permanent members of the Security Council, all of them have records of using sexual violence in their armies, right? I haven't got evidence of China, but I'm not sure it's there somewhere. Um, there's, there's, right, for the four of them, there's, we can't say that there's not, right? There's sexual violence that have happened in the five permanent members, the countries of those five permanent members, and in the, the peacekeeping missions. And what's really interesting, as Catherine has said, is not just okay, we're supporting the DRC military and they're using sexual violence, but it's also our peacekeeping forces that are going out and they have trafficking rings and paedophilia rings and there's sexual exploitation and abuse happening by our peacekeeping forces. And we're saying that sexual exploitation and abuse is a HR issue and we deal with it over there. And this other stuff on sexual violence, we deal with this here. Um, 
To me, the big barrier then is the politics of this, is the politicization of sexual violence and where states are willing to say that's what we're responsible for and that's what we're not responsible for. So I'm just going down the critique route again and the problems. I'm not sure if I can come up with the successes. Um, I think what success looks like is, is I think us as activists keeping pushing the agenda and saying this is great. Part of it is the time for implementation of these 10 resolutions, but also in a way that says we'll use the Security Council and this is really important that it's in the Security Council, but we will keep pushing the idea that broader harms should be acknowledged. Where you, um, you know, all of the five permanent states are also the largest um, sellers of arms around the world that are fueling the conflicts, right? And there's this perennial question that women's rights activists are asking is, is the Women, Peace and Security agenda trying to make war safer for women rather than preventing conflict? So I think, it's almost coming back to our roots, which is, as I said, the starting point of gender as a framing, but also the pacifist stance that women activists had in the first place and bringing that conversation consistently into the council and I think challenging them all the time that we shouldn't just accede to this is what we want the WPS agenda to look like. It's what we're getting for now and maybe that's okay. And the cost benefit analysis is the cost of going into the council, it looks like this but that we keep pushing and keep pushing. Um, and and I, I think that's probably, it takes a lot of energy on our part, but you know, that's probably what keeps that to be done. Yeah. Okay. So we've um, just a few sort of three minutes, just if there's any kind of final questions or reflections or contributions, it's a good opportunity to offer them. Yeah. Where sexual violence was used strongly yes. uh, to look into what they're calling partial genocide. The new time also I got to learn about. What's it called? Partial genocide. Passion? Partial, partial, partial genocide. genocide. They say that it's partial genocide happening in South uh, oh. Sudan. Though it's real genocide. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's whether we keep going to, to keep holding up that space and making these things visible. Because I do think the project of making things visible is what's an important endeavor going forward. Um, but as I said, it requires a lot of energy and a lot of time. And how we frame something really matters, right? And whether it's counted in a particular way, whether it's framed in a particular way. So the project of making, in terms of what I'm talking about, women's rights or, or women's experiences of conflict visible is not over just because we have 10 resolutions, you know? Um, and I think that's the ongoing effort that on the ground, we need to continue to contest what the politics of the UN system says versus what we know is, is the real politics in women's lives, you know, and how that's impacting them. Okay, I think that's a nice note on which to <laughs> conclude. Um, if I might, just before we formally conclude, just to um, remind everybody that this is, this is part of our seminar series. Um, we had a mention of Dominic Ongwin, for those of you interested in the International Criminal Court and its intersection with WPS 
Uh, Yasin Brunger will join us on March 27th uh, to talk about her work in that area. And indeed, tomorrow we have a talk from Catherine Turner um, on WPS and Women Mediators. And we've been other events, so please do sort of keep in touch and keep updated and, and please do keep coming and spread the word. Um, and with that, I just want to thank Ashley very sincerely for um, joining us today for her contributions and reflections. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank okay. you. Thank you.